Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is part 2 of a message called Thoughts on Worship. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Uh, the context here is talking about the popular story, the woman at the well. Christ came and wanted some water. Conversation goes on and I'm going to pick it up right here in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me. Now, I, I didn't say this last week, but, you know, she said, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, he is the prophet. Christ is the prophet. So he says, Woman, Believe me, because I, I am the prophet. We know in Hebrews 1, first verse talks about in times past, he spoke to the prophets, but now it's Christ, the final prophet. So here he is talking to this lady. He's going to lay down some truth to her about worship. The hour is coming when you shall neither worship the Father in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, as opposed to false worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and they who worship him must Worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I am the one speaking to you. Now, last week we looked in the introduction and we described uh, a lot of idolatry that's in the world, different forms of idolatry, in, mainly in religion, of course, even under the name of Christianity. And we readily admit we took part in that before our conversion. And I had mentioned that uh, we need to keep this in mind when we're dealing with people, how that we, we only know what we know because God has revealed these things by the truth of the gospel through the power of the Spirit. So we are nothing special in and of ourselves. So we should not have that attitude, that we, that know-it-all attitude, but have the humble attitude. And if we want, uh, you would think that we would want other people to believe what we believe. So carry that out in your practices of evangelism and apologetics, defense of the faith, and so on when we're dealing with people. And you would think and hope and that, that that idea in our minds would grow would as we mature, you know, it should be apparent to people that hear us, especially when we're in their presence, that um, that we care and, you know, be willing to sacrifice your time and energy and deal with people and not be uh, impatient or unloving, but show compassion and humility as you're delivering the truth. We talked about worship, what it what the word meant. Just run over that real quick. 
It is to crouch, that is to literally or figuratively prostrate oneself in homage or reverence or to adore, to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. And more than anything, what we expressed last week, we were trying to kind of get to the crux of the matter last week, was talking about simplicity of worship. And I emphasize not simplicity that worship would be shallow, far from it. I think some of you that have been to other churches and come here, and it's not attributed to me or anything, it's, it's the doctrine we hold, it's the Christ that we worship, is not shallow. He is, Christ is remarkable, which means we can remark about him on and on and on and on and never stop because of the depth of who Christ is. So that that Christ that we worship, we worship him through the means of the word of God, which contains in it deep theology and doctrine that we are to explain in a simplistic way so that the average person can understand. And we can do that. Now, it's going to take the spirit of God for their mind to be opened up to believe it and to receive it and to love it. But when I say simplistic in reference to worship, I just wanted to stress that it's not shallow worship. What I'm talking about, as we touched on last week, is, is to worship without humanistic Formal, superstitious, physical aids used in worship, as in things and distractions of, of places and things. We, we covered a lot of that last week, and you could talk about that forever, about the, the error that's out there of places and things that distract from worshiping God in spirit and truth. This week on the radio, as I was driving to work, something caught my ear about Crossroads Church. There's a couple of them, I think, in the Cincinnati area. They just expanded, Jason, over your way somewhere. We've had people come in here from that church. And there's a, there's a, a lady in particular that uh, needs to be here who I think is attending the one on the west side. But the new facility in Cincinnati, it only costs $20 million to establish. That's all, right? So my point is, do you think there's anything that's involved there that's distracting the $20 million purchased? That's the purpose of that money. The more money you have to buy things and use that are distracting, the more people you'll bring in. There's a fellow I had mentioned in the announcements who had been to that type of a church and is looking for a gospel church. And I hope he's even listening right now, but... We don't want those distractions. Our focus is gospel-centered, Christ-focused. We, we are here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not going to cost us $20 million. We don't even pass an offering plate. Now, we talked about confusion of people uh, in John, chapter after chapter after chapter. I gave a few examples of people getting the physical mixed up with the spiritual. Christ talked about, in this chapter here, he talked about water. He's talking about himself. And this lady's talking about the water, the H2O that's in the well, you know. Another chapter he talked about being the bread. They were scratching their head. Talked about the new birth. Nicodemus confused. I gotta go up my mom's womb again. And and all these things that 
are pointing to Christ and show Christ and focus on Christ. Everybody's in left field like we were before we're converted about what these things mean. The Christ words that he uses are truth words, of course, and they are spiritual words. Keep your place there and, and turn to chapter 6 of John. I want to show you a statement where Christ made concerning this idea of his words being spiritual. Try to tie this back in later to our text here in a minute. John chapter 6, pretty good chapter. Got a lot of good stuff in it. Verse 63, if I remember correctly, context right before this, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They're thinking cannibalism, you know, these people, they don't, they don't know, they're not getting it. Christ says in verse 63, it is the spirit that makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now that's a mouthful right there. And it'd be good to just to camp there and talk about it. But this is a side note in our, our bigger message here today. But that, that is a lot said right there. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who is the one betraying him, referring to Judas Iscariot. And he said, because of this, I said unto you that no man can come unto me. Notice the language there of inability. No man, none without exception, can come to me. And you do that by faith in reference to this action of the spirit. No man can come to me unless it was given to him from my father. Christ is saying here, uh, as he has already said in some other verses previous, verse 37, verse 44, all the father gives me shall come to me, verse 37, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. So he, he shows some sovereign grace there. Verse 44, no man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. Some more sovereign grace. And there, there's some more sprinkled in there. But here he makes this statement here of another thing that shows that people are shut up to mercy. You can't do this on your own. God has to do it for you. This is what sovereign grace is. This is what mercy is. God is not obligated, number one, to do this. And you don't have the power to do it on your own. So God has to go out and rescue you from yourself, from your sins, and do the work. And he makes this bold statement here about that. And it gets some reaction. Because they heard what he said. They had some intellectual understanding of the statement that he was making. He was clear about it. And there was a result to it. And what was that? Verse 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples, these were the ones that were trying to learn something. He's not talking about the immediate 12. But he's talking about those that had been following him and listening to him. And they got a free meal here this time about the loaves and the fishes, how they multiplied. They got their bellies full. They saw some miracles. They're listening to something they had not heard before. Because, as the lady said, I perceive that, that you're a prophet. Yeah, he's speaking with authority. Remember, 
when we did the Lordship thing, we kept reading that text in, in uh, Matthew 7. And then after he talked, he said, And they were astonished at his doctrine, because he spoke with one of authority, not as the scribes. So here he is. He's, he's hammering on these things about himself, about the Father, about the Spirit. And he made this bold statement, shut everybody up to sovereign grace. And it says, in this time, many of his disciples, those ones that were listening, went back and walked with him no more. They were done because they understood what he was saying and they didn't like what they heard because the spirit had not done a work in their heart. Then Jesus said to the 12, talking about the 12 disciples in, in distinction to these other disciples that left. He looked at the 12, asked them a question, a pointed question in contrast to these ones that left. So he looks at the 12 and he says, will you also go away? And then the spokesman, Peter, sometimes he says some stupid stuff like we have said in the past, right? And may continue to say, but he got it right here. He says, Lord, speaking to Christ, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Backs up Christ's testimony in the first verse we looked at up there. The words that I speak are spirit and they are life. Uh, good point, Peter. Right? We, we believe and agree with Peter and say yes and amen. Christ is the word. He's the living word. He is life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just alive. He is life. We can throw those truth statements out to people, and they may have even read them and heard them, and, and, but they don't soak in. A lot of times we'll say these things, and it'll be like these people. As we get more concise and more clear and pointed, it doesn't matter that we're compassionate, we're loving, we're sincere, we care, we're patient. There'll be a point if they're not God's people, they'll say that I've had enough. And there's the promise that Christ said, you know, they hated me, they'll hate you. Am I to adjust my answers so that I can retain these people? That's what these bigger churches do. Even the smaller churches that believe a false gospel do the same thing. Last week, we asked some questions. We started to answer a few. And here was one of them. Who is commanded to and who is obligated to worship God? Everybody. Everybody on the face of the earth. All people. God, in his, even in his law, has pretty much said this. He delivered his law. And, and if a person is not a believer... If by faith they don't believe the gospel, they are under the law and they're obligated to God under the law. And the law says, one of the laws, thou shalt not have any other gods before me or besides me. I mean, that takes care of the whole thing right there, right? Goes further and he talks about no graven images or likenesses and then he uh, goes on down, he talks about not to take his name in vain. And uh, that's just not saying GD or that, you know, things like that. That is also referring to 
using the name of Christ or the name of God religiously, even in a sincere way, but but attributing wrong character attributes to who he is. In other words, giving disinformation or lying about God. Even if you're sincere or zealous, it doesn't matter. People in false religion are using God's name in vain right now in other pulpits. If they're preaching the message that does not line up with scripture, they're using his name in vain. They don't even know it. So all people are obligated to worship God. And we know God's people, we want to. We've been caused by giving a new heart to desire to worship him. Let's get back to the text. We're going to, we're going to answer some other questions, especially on how to worship God. We know that we worship the Father through Christ. Christ is the mediator. We know the Spirit is involved there that causes these things to happen in our minds to be able to worship, to know who he is. And as we grow and learn, we should see him lifted up higher and higher, and we should see us in our place lower and lower and lower. As I've often said, and I didn't make it up, I got it from some other good theologians and preachers, that when we grow and mature, we grow down in humility. So we worship the Father through Christ the mediator. We can't even come to him or approach him unless we have the mediator. And the Spirit works in us to do this. We'll see some more of that as we go on. And, and we worship, and I want to stress this, we worship God with our mind. With our mind. We may do things practically with our body as we roam around in a mobile way. But we worship God with our mind. It is an attitude that we have and it's been revealed to us by the spirit we've been given faith to do this it's with our mind verse 23 of our text Christ goes on he says the hour is coming this is where we left off I read these two verses and we I said we'd come back to them this week and here we are the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth because the Father seeks such to worship him. I made a quick statement last week that this doesn't mean that the Father's scrambling around. Here we had the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an eternal trinity. And they were, some religions paint the trinity as just so lonely out there. Just like, I, I need somebody to fellowship with. <laughs> that crocodile tear welded up. I need somebody to fellowship with, so I created some people, and now I, I, I feel better about it. Now, we know that the Trinity is self-sufficient and in not need of anything. And in God's eternal purpose, he purposed to glorify himself in the redemption of these people that have not even yet been created yet. And it's all focused and centered around the cross of Christ. That was the purpose of creation. It wasn't God was lonely. God is not lonely. He is in need of nothing. He, he stated that. We read a verse last week. He says that he's not worshipped in temples built with hands as if he needed anything. And he's not even served with hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. The Father seeks such to worship him. 
even I think this language is used in, in, a, in a sovereign way. Sometimes we wonder, we, we read verses that talk about God hiding himself, right? We look at verses that on the surface, sometimes they're not translated as well as they could be, in, in my opinion, and in some people that know language better than I, Greek language. And some people say, why, why is that so, why is that made seemingly unclear? Well, uh, what's it say in Mark 4.11? It talks about, they said, what do you, Christ, why do you speak in parables? Most people say, well, so you can understand better. That's not what Christ said. He said that they're for you, talking to the believers, and for everybody else, it's a blinding process. Some people say, uh, God is not the author of confusion. Well, you know what? He'll send strong delusion. He'll use... Satan, who is a confusing type, lying type creature, and he'll say, go ahead, turn him over to a reprobate mind, use all those means. God's people are not confused. God's people are taught by God. They shall all be taught of God. That's another one in John 6. So people like to pick things here and there out of context and try to apply them where they don't go. But this right here, some would think that they would make it look like God is like desperately trying to, who can I find to worship me? Now, he's the cause of bringing people to himself to worship him through his son. So I don't think anybody here is confused on that at all. We could camp there and develop that, but I think we're straight on that. The father's not desperate. Verse 24, this is really why I chose this complete text to bring us here is this verse in the text. God is spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is an eternal spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that Christ has made himself seen by taking on flesh some 2,000 years ago. Before that, Christ was eternal spirit. Christ created the world when Christ was in the form of a spirit before he took on flesh. You know, a lot of religious people don't even know that. There's text that we look at in the first few verses of John, in Colossians, in um, Hebrews, there's just a few mentioned there, and there's more. But it specifically talks of Christ being put out by the Father preeminently to do the task of creation. And because he is the word, the living word, the eternal word, he used his own word to speak creation into existence. We don't have to go down to the creation museum and spend six hours down there trying to scratch our heads and figure out how did this happen. By faith, we understand how the worlds are framed, Hebrews 11. They're by this Christ, this one that we're here to worship today, the one that's speaking. And in that, we have an understanding. And I think primarily, if we know that Christ has saved wretched sinners like us, he can do this easy task of creating the world. He can speak that into existence. If he went to the cross and he took on our sin, this is easy right here to do.
to create the world. So God is a spirit and in Christ he came down to be, again, we just spoke of the, the final prophet and to make clear the word of God to us. And we see as the revelation of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation gets clearer and clearer and clearer. We have the gospel. We're in a time, you know, some people say, oh, I wish I was in the time walking around with Christ. Or I wish I was back then with uh, Daniel or Moses. Or I'm pretty happy right now. We have been given, these are spiritual blessings in Christ. We've been given the complete canon, the word of God. Christ himself, what was it? When Thomas wanted to stick his finger in a nail hole, Christ said, yeah, it's, that's all right. But you know what? Blessed are they that have not seen and still believe, right? This is the idea of, of these fancy terms that we have used before epistemology, which is the justification for believing what we believe, or apologetics, the branch of apologetics, which is presuppositionalism. We presuppose everything that we read in here is true because it comes from the lips of this one who his words are spirit and they are life. And again, they come with an understanding. It's not a blind leap in the dark. We don't teach nonsense like that, that we just blind leap in the dark. We're just believing things that we don't understand. We, we have an understanding with it. The Spirit gives us an understanding, and that understanding grows. So God is a Spirit, and they who worship Him and, and the elect are the only ones that are going to worship Him rightly. These are the true worshipers, the elect of God that have been converted to the truth. They worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we know about the doctrine of total depravity. It's firmly in place in Scripture that because of what happened in the garden, how that man went into sin, fell into sin, there was a change in man. Something changed in man's heart, in his mind, his will, his affections. He all of a sudden, the Scripture says that he died that day. He died, which meant that he lost a lot of things that he had before. He had some abilities before. Now, man that was born after the fall is born crooked at the base, at the root, is just ate up with the bondage of sin and has now a sin nature and is born condemned. So there is a, a lack of understanding. There is none righteous, there is none good, there's none that understands, and there's none that seeks after God. This is why the Father has to seek some to worship Him, because they can't seek Him. So there's all kind of problems we know when we see that in the doctrine that's clear in Scripture of total depravity. So we need the Spirit of God to do an operation in our minds, give us a new mind or a new heart, so that we can perform this here, this worship. We can't worship someone we don't know. And we can't know anybody if we're spiritually dead. So we are given life by the Holy Spirit through the means of the gospel. And we are alivened and, and the truth is revealed to us through the means of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And we see for the first time. And this is irresistible grace. And we passed from death unto life. And now we have a new life in Christ. We walk in the Spirit. We live by faith. And we are given an ability for the very first time to be able to see and worship this one that we worship. 
And we cannot do that without the Spirit. We just can't do it. All worship without the Spirit is in vain. It's a waste. It's actually sin. Now, the previous verse, he talks about true worshipers. Whenever we read things like this in verse 24, verses like 23 should pop in our minds and see that contrast. See what's going on now compared to what we're doing now and go back in your minds what you were doing back then before you knew this Lord. And you should easily be able to look back at a time and shake your head and say, wasn't that ridiculous? What I was thinking, what I was doing when I was thinking I was worshiping who I called Christ, who I called God, the idea in my head that I thought of when I thought of God. It's, it was idolatrous. God has, when he has wakened us up, he woke us up and he gave us life to see and understand. He also gave us the gift of repentance to not only change doctrines, but at the same time, we changed gods. We're done with the false idol of our imagination. We saw that it was comparable to dumb idols like in the Old Testament that you have to pick up and help and set up and move because he's God and there's none else. Any other God takes you to help him out. This is the only God you don't help out. You're the only one that's being helped. And all the other religions a lot of times will be so deceptive that you think Maybe that you're not even helping him out and he's helping you out. But still, there is enough splash of scripture in there. That you're just going to be walking along with scales of your eyes. And as, as it says in Isaiah, Isaiah, their ears are waxed gross. They're plumb full of spiritual dead earwax. And that's just an idea there, a, a term that just saying you can't hear, you're deaf. And... Um, you know, we, the scripture uses this physical blindness to compare to this idea of spiritual blindness. We know it looks at Lazarus. He was just laid out four days dead. Spiritually, we can see that that's the same thing. We, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made alive. We know that's where we came from. We have to always retain in our minds where we came from to keep our head level when we deal with people, and just for ourselves too, take heed where you stand. Don't think any more highly of yourself than you ought to. We're just beggars. We continue to be beggars. We continue to know and understand that we are dependent on the mercy of God for everything. Some people would say, well, it, it says we worship in spirit and in truth. Some would say, this is talking about being charismatic, being excited. No, has nothing to do with it. I am excited about it. I was talking with Andy in the back about some things I've been thinking about this week. And I said in a monotone, low-key voice with a locked jaw, I said, I'm excited right now. I'm about ready to explode. Can you tell? <laughs> and everybody knows sometimes I'm just like not much change. But this has nothing to do with being charismatic. Believing something by faith in our mind will cause some emotional reaction, even if it's not expressed outwardly. 
it's expressed inwardly. There is fruit. And just because we're not jumping all over these chairs, and I haven't had my ears pierced with any amens yet today, doesn't mean that we're not worshiping in the Spirit. We know in Romans, we, we talk about walking in the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. A lot of times people infuse weird ideas in that. They infuse just religion into it. And they, they just think, well, this is talking about outward immorality. Talking about living in the flesh. Sometimes the word flesh is used that way, but a lot of times in the context of Scripture, and I'm going to say most of the time, the, the Spirit of God uses language that talks about doctrine and, and the gospel in Christ. Looking to Christ alone, that's living in the Spirit. Living in the flesh is leaning upon our own righteousness. It does include dabbling in stuff we shouldn't dabble in. But the flesh primary is talking about the flesh in our mind, what we think of when we are thinking wrong things that are not reverential. They're not reverential to God. We look to, if we look in ourselves instead of looking to Christ, it's living by the flesh, leaning on the arm of the flesh. That's another phrase. Believing God is walking in the spirit. When Adam ate of the fruit, it's not like he was dealing with a prostitute or shooting heroin. He just didn't believe God. And on purpose, he joined in with the sin of Eve. And Eve was deceived. She didn't do heroin or rob banks or anything else either. She was getting in the flesh and her mind and opposing the truth of God. We have to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that is... That is encapsulated in the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Needless to say, those that don't know the truth of Christ are not worshiping God. What is it in um, 2 John and, and maybe even 1st also, talking about those that are not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. If you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, you don't know me or God, he says. In Romans 8 there, I think it, it talks about walking in the Spirit. It says, makes Paul makes a statement under the inspiration of the Spirit of God as he's writing. And he says something like, he says, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And what he's saying there, if you don't, then none of this matters. You're outside. So that's what this text is saying here. If, if you're outside, if you don't have the Spirit in you, working in you to show you these things, which would be the truth. That's the second thing mentioned, spirit and truth. If you don't have the spirit dealing with you and showing you the truth, then you're not worshiping God. You, you can't because you don't know him. Eternal life, John 17, 3, is knowing him, knowing Christ. First John 5, 20, we know him because he has given us an understanding that we might know him. The one who is the true God. These things just, they just keep, uh, you know, the preponderance of texts complement and harmonize and just keep going back to the same thing. We see it every week. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're winding it down here. And verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, 
It, and it is quite often, right? He's saying it right here. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. This is talking about people that don't believe it or don't understand it or don't know it. Verse 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Now, I want to address this uh, in the election series that's coming up shortly when we deal with the absolute sovereignty of God in reprobation or the non-elect. And I've said this before here, and I'm going to say it again just briefly, and some people I'm sure are going to be shocked that are hearing this. The word God here in verse 4 is the same word God in verse 6. It's the same original word in the Greek. I believe it's the same person. I believe this is a mistranslation. And this verse 4 should be capital G. This is my opinion. And if somebody can convince me otherwise, I would like to be challenged. They can. I'm not talking about debate. I'm talking about if I'm missing something, I want to see the truth is what I'm saying. In the context, it's, it's pretty clear to me. The God of this world had blinded the minds which believe not. Now, you can go to several texts where it shows that God blinds people and hides the gospel, hides himself. It's all over the place. Isaiah 6, Romans 11. I quoted Marvin earlier about the parables. That's just a few places. People are afraid of this because of the Armenian, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian conditionalism in their minds of fairness. It's not fair. Why would God, because they automatically think, well, God wants to save everybody. Why would he work against his own purpose to save everybody? Well, they're wrong on the purpose. He doesn't want to save everybody. If he wanted to save everybody, everybody would be saved. If you don't believe that about God, you're dealing with a different God. You're not worshiping this God in spirit and truth. It's a different God. I don't want to worship a God that I have to help out and, and lead around with a ring in his nose and me have my will over his will. I can find people in this world that have a stronger will than me. I'd rather worship them. I just worship myself. God is absolutely sovereign. He's running it all. He does as he pleases. In the army of heavens and in the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop his hand or say to him, what are you doing? The idea of this unfairness thing is, is the Armenian idea, which puts man in control, and it makes Christ to be some effeminate, and I don't want to use some words, but it's going toward the gay, right? Look, the Christ and his church and the husband and the wife, that contrast there, as Paul teaches that, that the husband is the head of the home. Christ is the head of the church. These and these conditional works plus grace churches, Armenian churches, they have the church, the individual body members of the church, ruling over their supposed savior that they helped out to get saved in the first place. They've turned him into an effeminate wuss. I don't want any part of it. 
It's not good. It's sick. God is in charge. He, he's in charge who's, who gets to see and who doesn't. He, he's decided from the foundation of the world, and that's what our election series will be on. And this language here, the second part of this sentence, matches what it says in Mark 11 concerning what would happen if he would show someone the truth. Lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And what? They would believe, of course, right? Verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. This is not about us. We're serving Christ in reference to this ministry, this message. All of us in the ministry. It's not about us. This is a time of worship. I'm not going to stop this time of worship and say, okay, whose birthday was it this week? Um, you know, I care about your birthdays. I think birthdays are stupid. But I know some people are weird about it, so I'm going to care about your birthday, you know. If somebody wants to get me something, I don't want anything, but I appreciate people giving me stuff. I understand traditions in this country, how it works. But my point is, this time of worship that we look to Christ, we preach not ourselves. In the announcements, we talk about things that are personal, people getting jobs, people having babies, things like that. That's fine and that's acceptable. But when we worship, we preach not ourselves. It's not about us at all. Look at this here, verse 4. For God, the same one who did what? Commanded the light to shine out of darkness. This is in creation. Has shined in our hearts to give us, this is our minds, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face or the person of Jesus Christ. Here is this event right here, this, this event of irresistible grace. And this is the time of conversion. And this is what brings us in to where we are able now to worship God in spirit and truth. Right here. Before that, even us, we were blinded, we were confused. And God, at the appointed time, brought through his providence, he brought the gospel that testifies of his blessed son and who he is and what he accomplished. And we have knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It took a certain amount of power. Here we say, we see the, the God that caused light to shine out of darkness when it created the world. And we see, and I keep talking about it, Ephesians 1, that power that it took to raise Christ up from the dead. It, it, that's this right here. Has nothing to do with free will either. It's education by revelation through the means of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And it actually happens to us. It says in the next verse, but we have this treasure. Is it a treasure or not? It's a big deal. That's why this is what I'm talking about worship. If worship of Christ is not a treasure, I don't know what you're doing here. You know, I know people drive. Most people don't know, but we've got people coming from the north, the south, and the east, uh, some up to two hours to get here. And they pass hundreds of church buildings, and they are doing something they think is worship, and it's blasphemy. They're, it's like putting a pig on the altar, right? Strange fire, vanity, blasphemy. So we, we here gather and we fellowship in the gospel and we keep pointing to the treasure. 
Christ is our treasure. And this gospel is the means. And we're given light to see Christ through the gospel continually. We grow in that, mature in that. And we seem to be excited about that. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We carry it around. And this is kind of the point the other day. I'm not going to get to develop this, but uh, this conversation started and this idea for this message started talking about, I said that worship was 24-7, meaning all the time. And, of course, this person, uh, so when you're sleeping, you're worshiping, you know what I mean? You're going to the bathroom, you're worshiping. When we do all things, we do it to the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ. Everything that we do, we are to do with this attitude of worship, whether it be thankfulness, praise, reverence, pray without ceasing. We brought that verse up, pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean we get in a prone position and do something religious with our hands, right? doesn't mean that. It means that we, we clock in and we're in for good. We're always thinking, meditating, not in an Eastern way. We are mulling things in our minds concerning what God says in his word. And we just continually do that. And we hope that nothing distracts us. I mean, we do have to do things. We have to work. We have to eat. You know, we do have to sleep. This thing of worship, what I'm getting at, it is an attitude. And an attitude is, where's that at? It's not in my elbow, my ankle. It's in our minds. And the scripture, what does it do? It renews our minds. We're brainwashed. Our minds are washed and renewed. And we grow and we learn. And what does that cause? Worship. That's the fruit that comes out of that. Worship. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. In verse 6, where it, it shows that event that takes place in our life at conversion of irresistible grace. Some of you, it doesn't matter that you can... Not pinpoint the day, the hour, you know, don't lean too much on that. But you can look back and you can say, well, I know when I used to believe in a different God and a different gospel. And now there's a sharp, stark contrast that's moved me from death into life. And now I know now. I can't tell you when it was. I might not remember or be able to pinpoint, but I tell you who I worship now. It's this Christ. And I see that that has taken place, and I see that the power is of God and it is not of us. Because of that, I preach not myself. Even in my own head, we should be thinking this. Even in our own heads, we should never, even if we don't even say it, we shouldn't even think of ourselves when it comes to this. It's all of grace. I just want to say this real quick. I mean, this was an important part of the message. How are believers to incorporate worship not only in our daily lives, but on a weekly basis, place or time? I, I did emphasize in this message in the last that kind of like if you would listen to it, some people hearing it might think, man, he gave me every excuse not to come to church, right? What I'm trying to do is giving you no excuse not to worship outside of church. If you didn't get that, you didn't get anything. 
That's my point. When we're not here in this room, there is no excuse not to worship outside of here. That's the emphasis. If you don't get anything today, get that. Having said that, I just want to emphasize just briefly the vast importance through the purpose of God and the commands of God that there is a special time, there is a certain time that the body gathers to worship him corporately or together. There's a purpose there. It's all throughout the scripture. We've touched on it here and there over the years. But he's promised to be in the middle of God's people when they meet together for the specific purpose of gathering together as a body to worship. Now, I'm not trying to get mystical or anything. It's just what the scripture says. If you collect the scriptures all up, that is, there is a there is a different way, there's a different emphasis and different focus when the body gathers and they are united in one mind, in one unit, in a body, having the same goals and the same mindset in worshiping God together when they are knit together in love and so on and so forth. This is when this takes place. I mean, I could go to Hebrews 10, 25 is, is the one text where people go to uh, preachers go to beat people up for not coming to church. Sometimes they don't read the broader context of why it's so important to meet. Let me read that real quick. Let us hold fast to profession. Chapter 10, verse 23. Hold fast to profession of our faith without wavering. It's referring to assurance in the gospel. For he is faithful who promised. And it escalates here. Let us consider one another to provoke one another to love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ, that final day. He's saying as time goes on, it gets more important. So last week is not quite as important as this week. And next week is a little bit more important than this week that we gather because the day of Christ is approaching. The times are dark. Christ's second coming is closer every week, every second. And the, the next verse talks about faith. I don't have it written down here, but it talks about if we sin willfully, after having received this gospel, the sin is talking about the sin of unbelief. And in this context, it's talking about going back into the old covenant and dabbling in things that don't have anything to do with faith. It has to do with what we were talking about last week, places and things. Right. And bring this into our current context, contemporarily, what's going on in this world in our lives. We can we can mirror that same idea. Let's not dabble back in the old things before we were converted the way that we thought about who God is, about who Christ is, about who we are. And we can hear the message of the truth and then we can go back into those old beggarly elements of bondage, as it says here in Hebrews. We don't want to do that. The writer says we are not at the end of this chapter says we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but we are the ones that believe into the saving of the soul. We persevere in the gospel. There's a warning here. Continue to persevere in the gospel. That's the point of this whole thing right through here. Do you think it would be helpful if we are to persevere to have people to support us who agree with us, who love us, who are in unity 
with us on this doctrine to encourage us. You think that would be helpful? Or should we just shut the whole thing down and see how that works individually? See how everybody does individually. Don't, don't anybody say anything. Disassociate and see how good you do by yourself. As time goes on, what would that look like? I, I don't know. It might look different to each different individual. I don't want it to happen. One time, Henry Mahan was talking about this fellow that didn't think it was important to meet with the church body. They were in front of a fire, and he took these tongs, and all the coals were cherry red. He took one, and he picked it up with the tong and put it over there by itself and just kept talking, didn't say anything about it. As time went on, you could see that the fire was still churning there and, and still red and glowing and giving heat. And after a while, that one was fizzing out by itself. It was fizzing out, fading out. And the fire just eventually, it stopped. It was just gray, dead. And these others were still... Now, there's a there's an illustration there that shows a little something. And I'm not going to build a, a systematic theology on that little story. I'm not saying that. I'm not that goofy. But there, there's an idea there. And, and I'm not also saying, do you mean anybody that separates themselves from the church for a great length of time proves himself to be non-elect? I'm not making that emphatic statement, but... There are statements in the scripture that are relative to that. And we can't read that. We don't know. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out from us to show that they were not of us. Now, you understand the idea. When we look at things like that, let's not get the cart before the horse and saying that we are persevering in being in a place. And unless we're in a place, we're not elect. I'm not saying that. I know God's people persevere in the gospel, whatever place they're in. I know that. Colossians 1 is a good one that says that. We've looked at that several times. So there was a bunch more to say about the local church and about the body and the involvement there. Any questions or comments? My question has been posed me a couple times, Scott is that there's so many different doctrines and religions out there that all claim that they, they preach the truth. What would you say versus what we preach and believe versus what the others are preaching and claiming? All right. I've been asked that from people that, that don't even believe the truth. And the question was, uh, a lot of religions out there, in case they didn't hear it, a lot of religions out there say they believe the truth. I mean, if we make that statement, we believe the truth and we preach the truth. I mean, I don't, we, we don't make the statement that we are the only ones in the world that preach the truth. I'm not even going to say I'm, we're the only ones in this county that preach the truth. I'm not even going to say that. But taking the tenor and tone of Scripture overall, we know that as time goes on, it'll be harder to find the truth. We can see blatant violations that are against the truth. And, and I hope as time goes on, you can see those clearer and see them further off. You can set up religious organizations that say some of the same things we say, whether it be in doctrine 
or practice, like this uh, young man that was looking for a church that he didn't like the style that he was in before. He wasn't getting anything out of it. And great, I'm glad. I hope he, I hope he can't sleep until he gets here. There are some people that are in churches that are Reformed, Calvinistic, Sovereign Grace that are off on so many things that it's torture to go there. I've been in some before. A guy I'm trying to come to our church that lives kind of a distance. He said something about a church that was a little bit closer. And I'm, I don't care anymore. I'm of the age where I'm, I try to speak the truth and not be offensive. I told him, I said, I wouldn't walk across the street to go to that place. It's a Reformed Baptist church. And they're, they're off on a lot of stuff. And sometimes when people say stuff like that, is it, is it a matter of gas money? I'll give you some gas to come here. Come and see and taste what we got going. Then after that, if you don't like it, I mean, uh, I'm not going to twist your arm. So there are groups that, and, and I got a little bit further into your question, that what I'm saying is even look kind of like what we look like. But to zero in on, of course, we have to look at the gospel. We have to define the gospel. A lot of churches, they won't do that. They can't do it. They never do it. So we define the gospel. And we realize that that is the first step. If the church doesn't preach the gospel the way the scripture presents it, it's, it's not a place to go to. It's a place to recommend not to go to. And then, of course, with the extension from that is their practice. There's their doctrine. That's the first concern. Second concern is their practice. Does their practice contradict their gospel? Sometimes there's a practice that accompanies the true gospel that is not quite as good as it should be. And some people might just have to settle for that, you know. I mean, if I if I knew of a church around here that preached the truth like we did, the gospel, and they did some weird stuff that I was, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll go and bear up with that weird stuff to hear the gospel. I would sacrifice my particular likes and dislikes on style to hear the gospel. And I think that should be the attitude that we should have. I mean, there's, there's all kind of practices. Some churches, they say that, uh, you know, foot washing is, a, is an ordinance and they have foot washing every year. That's just one thing that just, we just don't do. I don't, I don't see the scripture teaching that we should do that. But if there's a church that was like solid on the gospel, I think I would like maybe that once a year I would like fake sick or something. But I would go because the, I, I need to hear the gospel. Right. And if there's some other secondary issues that are that are done, I, I would bear up with that and allow them to do their liberty. And I would just whatever. I, I know I know a church. That split over grape juice versus wine at the Lord's Supper. I know another church that right now is not taking the Lord's Supper because they're afraid of a split if they go one side or the other. Now, I know those things can be worked out. They can be taught by the pastor and so on, and, and they should be. You're not going to hell because you didn't drink wine for the Lord's Supper. The gospel is what it's about. So you could go on and on and all that. But doctrinal is first. And I believe practice should match that. And if practice is like, nah, not according to my likes or 
whatever. As long as it doesn't violate the gospel, I think people can bear up with it. But for 30 years, I've, I've tried to search this area for churches and pastors to fellowship with. I don't know where they're at. Uh, there's a few people I know that, that keep a relationship with me at arm's distance. They don't want to get too close. But yeah, I've written some pastors, sometimes not even getting answers. It's not like I've said, hey, let's make our churches one church and let's join. It's not that. It's, it's, it's some initial conversation, you know what I mean? There's a couple of guys that are close by. That I've been, they, they've been friendly, and I've, you know, been out to coffee and eat with them and stuff. And I don't know where that'll go. But when we meet, we don't talk about puppy dogs and baseball. We talk about the gospel. I don't care, you know, if they, I don't care if they like all the very same things I like that don't have to do with the gospel. I don't care if they don't, if they're not in the gospel. I, I can't deal with them. How can two walk together except they be agreed? But that Patrick is asked a lot. And, and of course, you know, a lot of people look, they think we're being mean. I'm telling you, this, this thing of the gospel, it's nothing. To, it's life and death. And if people listening don't understand that statement, they're not there yet, I guess. Unless they've seen their past death that they came out of. And I tell you, we were... We were uh, sincere and zealous and fervent and all that about our past religion when we were in it we cried tears we drove distances we gave money all kind of so-called sacrifices we did and uh, we look back on it and um, shake our heads sometimes chuckle maybe cry you know i know a guy um, from down south he's a pastor i'm hoping to get to know him better who said after he believed the truth of the gospel, he was a false preacher. After he believed the truth of the gospel, he went back to everybody that he could think of and told and apologized, said, I lied to you. I preached to you a false gospel and then preached them the truth. He asked for, for their forgiveness and said, I, I'm telling you. And it was what they believed still. He said, I, you know, I lied. it was a lie. That's a good sign <laughs> for somebody to experience that and to be humbled enough to say, I, be I believe the opposite now. It's a different God. It's a totally different God. That's why when we talk about the scripture says there's another Christ, another gospel. I don't know if we've done it since you guys have been here. Uh, Andy, I might, you may have heard it. I don't know. But if I was talking about. Just use me, for example, because everybody on the camera can't see everybody out there. If somebody said Scott Price was a, a Jewish guy that was five foot six, wears a beanie, doesn't eat shrimp or pork. He's got one of those little lacy things around his belt with friends of the law thing. And he, on top of it, he's got a, just say he's got a pot belly, but that's pretty close. Weighs 300 pounds, five foot six, 300 pounds. And he likes opera, and his favorite food is potato salad. Now, if anybody knows anything about me, there, there is nothing accurate there. Nothing. And, and this is the way it is in, in the scripture. When we, when we hear people preach the so-called gospel, and you've known because you've come out of what is being taught, you're thinking, no, 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 lie, lie, lie. You know the lie, and you can explain the counter of it. 
And so those people that believe that lie, you can't have spiritual fellowship with them. Oh, they're just looking at Jesus from a different perspective. Oh, yeah? I don't think so. If you get in there with them and talk to them, I'm not talking about just like throwing a blanket statement and just writing them off without talking. I'm talking about you, you, you unpack it, you unfold it, and you say, you mean, are you telling me this and this and this and this? They say, yes. You give them the implications of what they're saying. They say, I don't care. That's what I believe. Okay. You're not my brother or sister in Christ. I can't, I can't engage in spiritual fellowship with you. I, I care about you. If you want to talk more about this, we can. But you believe a different gospel than I do. I know because I left that one. That God that you worship, I hate. The God I worship, you hate. It's not a different perspective. Come on. It might take more than a five-minute conversation to come to that conclusion, too. You just can't jerk people around. I mean, you gotta be you gotta be caring and loving. You might misunderstand what they say if they say something. Not everybody can say things accurately. So we have to be patient and say, well, what do you mean? You gotta ask quite what do you mean when you say that? I mean, I'm saying that, I'm asking that all the time. The longer I live, I've been burnt by that. What do you mean by that? Because people could mean the exact opposite. All right, anybody got a song to sing?